the Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am a senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, this week you spoke with the co-founders of BlockWorks, Jason Yanowitz and Mike Ippolito. Um, you also wrote about BlockWorks about a month ago and how they're planning to hit $20 million or more than $20 million in revenue this year after bringing in $13 million last year. How So BlockWorks is a crypto publisher. How does a crypto publisher make their money and, and to what extent is it different than any other publisher? So right now they're they're very much like sponsorship advertising based. Um, and the reason for that is, I guess, like any media publisher, especially like a, a early stages one, um, they make a lot of money from, um, you know, advertisers who are targeting a group of people that are really lucrative. Um, you know, crypto people have a uh, not crypto bros, but like, you know, they're, they're heavy handed in the, in the cryptocurrency <laughs> sphere. So they, there's a lot of, um, liquidity, I guess, that you could reach with this, um, readership. And they're actually kind of taking that a step further and, and starting to target DAOs for advertising opportunities, which is really interesting. Um, we spend a, a decent chunk of time in this interview going over what DAOs are for those of you who are curious. But then those DAOs, so decentralized autonomous organizations, they're also sitting on a lot of cryptocurrency. And they have this strategy to sell to DAOs, which are these, again, like decentralized organizations and getting them to buy ads in BlockWorks, which has proven to be pretty lucrative for them to date. And that's definitely a strategy that they're going to push forward this year to reach that $20 million target. All right. So DAOs you'd written recently about like <laughs> what the hell a DAO is, um, and then how you know this is a new type of advertiser for publishers like BlockWorks and even non-crypto publishers, um, and then NFTs. I mean, NFTs is an area that, as you've written about, a lot of media companies have gotten into. To what extent is BlockWorks counting on NFTs as part of hitting that twenty million plus in revenue this year? Yeah, so they are getting into NFTs, like tying it to their events business and basically selling NFTs as VIP passes to their big uh, primitive conference, which is happening, um, I think, like in a, in a couple months now. But they are using it, NFTs, as a way to really convene their readers um, and not just readers, but like virtual DAOs, bringing them in person as well. Um, and they are really looking at NFTs outside of the investment opportunities that NFTs kind of pose. Like, so people think of NFTs as like, a, you know, digital art, it could be an investment, maybe it, you know, increases in value over, you know, a few trades. But instead, they're looking at it as a way to provide additional content or experiences to people that like their readers who are, you know, very passionate about crypto, passionate about BlockWorks and attending events. So, um, you know, Mike really gets into that point quite a bit um, later in the conversation. And I think it's like an interesting thought process around NFTs and one that we don't really see too much right now. Awesome. I'm excited for this conversation, especially after checking out all your coverage and learning what Web3 is, NFTs, DAOs, all the blockchain stuff. So excited for this one. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Jason, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you doing? Doing well, Kayla. How are you doing? 
Yeah, thanks for having us. Doing great. Yeah, I'm excited to chat more with you guys about crypto, Web3, Blockworks, and how all of that ties into the media industry. Um, it's a really fun area for me to cover, and you, especially Jason, have been really helpful in uh, understanding a lot of these complex topics. So um, with that said, you guys are the co-founders of Blockworks. You are um, leading a company that's very hands-on in the crypto space, and you are also a media company, so you kind of are at this really great epicenter for my beat, which is awesome. But for those listeners who don't um, know much about Blockworks, and if you don't, you should read the profile I put together on them a few weeks ago. Could you just kind of introduce your company, what you guys focus on, and um, a little bit about your audience? Yeah, of course. Um, Blockworks was launched in May of 2018. Uh, basically, that back then, for those uh, for folks who have maybe not been in the kind of web through crypto space for that long, the information back then was really, really siloed and kind of all over the place. You had information about the industry on places like Twitter and Reddit and maybe one or two media companies and really weren't any podcasts or newsletters. And so Blockworks set out to solve that problem. So over the last four years, we've built what now looks like the fastest growing media company and information platform in, in crypto. And so today, like operationally, what that looks like, we own the largest podcast network in our industry. We have the fastest growing newsletter. We have two of the biggest conference brands. Big, you know, We have an amazing editorial team of journalists and reporters who put out breaking news in the, uh, in the industry. And yeah, uh, you know, our audience today looks like uh, investors ranging from 23-year-old retail and more like consumer investors to the prosumer side of things, uh, all the way to you know, the big institutional asset managers who are now starting to allocate to the asset class. And you guys started out with a more B2B focus, right? Um, and, and Mike, you, you kind of work on the editorial side of things. So I'm curious, like, like currently, is it still a very much B2B focus from the, um, you know, content perspective? Yeah, B2B versus B2C is a little bit of an interesting question in crypto. Like if you take the analog to financial media, you have a very clear distinction there in that, you know, B2B kind of institutions, financial services tend to be very, very sophisticated and retail tends to be a little bit less sophisticated. In crypto, There's that kind of is flipped on its head because oftentimes some of the more technically sophisticated consumers of information are actually on the retail side of things. So it's a little bit of a unique and interesting challenge in that we, like our, our motto on the editorial side is A, to just produce stuff that you know, we're proud of, but that be that we don't like to really water down uh, content. So it's kind of blurred the line a little bit in between that um, that institutional kind of B two B focus and the more retail focus. And I, I think our answer to that has largely been to divide things up in between brands. So if you take take a look at our conferences, our DAS conference, that's our institutional brand, and that's very focused on the asset manager segment, financial services segments. So we talk about a lot of kind of market structure stuff there. It's our buttoned up corporate suit uh, kind of answer. And then our permissionless conference brand is our much more like retail kind of everyone community focused uh, conference brand. Got it. All right. So you guys have touched on your podcast network. You have your events business. You have your editorial, which is only about a year old. Um, that is the like latest edition. But I'm curious if you could kind of take us through the business model. Um, you guys are like I think according to the the story we wrote, um, and I'd love to get an update if this has changed at all. But you're projecting to hit 20 million in revenue this year. Um, what's the kind of business split and and some of the you know areas of growth that you're excited about for 2022? 
Yeah. I mean, I think before getting into like the actual business model, I think it's helpful to just understand like what the business holistically looks like. And so, and that all ties back to the core thesis and the core thesis is that is is kind of twofold. One is that the number of investors uh, is that crypto would move from this more like retail consumer focused audience to an institutional audience and, and, and that the media brands in the industry would have to look more like maybe a Wall Street Journal or a Bloomberg and less like a uh, kind of a local publication. And the reason for that is because as the industry grows and the asset class grows, the number of investors who came into the industry would grow a thousandfold, right? And so at those investors, as well as the users and consumers who would come in, uh, they're going to need a better source of like information and data and analysis and news and insights. And so that's what we've really spent the last couple of years building is just this huge audience of investors who consume our, you know, the podcast, the newsletters, the events, things like that. And that ties together. This is a circular way of answering your question, but like that ties together because the business model right now, we've got this massive community that relies on Blockworks for as like a trusted source of information about the industry. Um, and so far we've monetized primarily with sponsorships and advertisements. So the customers look like, you know, the, the Coinbase's and Gemini's and Aves and Uniswaps of the world. Got it. So very endemic kind of advertising uh, mix there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of different, like within, within crypto, you can break down companies into more like the institutional customers and the, the folks who are trying to reach the retail and the consumer folks. But yeah, it's real. It's a primarily cr- a crypto focused uh, brand sponsorship driven business model right now. And about 90% of your revenue is, uh, is advertising, right? Like that's where it kind of sits at currently. Right now it looks like that. I, I think that's a big change that's coming over the next couple of years is, uh, a little bit of a less of a focus on the sponsorship side of things and a little more diversification across different revenue uh, streams. But that's what it looks like right now. Yeah. So one of the things that we touched on in the in the story I wrote about Blockworks um, a couple weeks ago was this idea of selling to DAOs, which I think is a very unique um, strategy that you guys have taken on and something that I think would confuse a lot of people in the media industry if they don't hear about it a little bit more. Um, so first of all, um, Mike, could you explain to us what a DAO is for the people who are unsure. God, uh, this is a little bit like, uh, what is Bitcoin, which is still the most basic question, but still such a difficult question to answer, honestly. And I think if you ask 10 people what DAOs are, you'd get 10 different answers. So let me tell you what I, the way I kind of think about DAO. So DAO stands for decentralized autonomous organization. I kind of think of it as the base organizational unit for internet native companies. So I think you get a couple of advantages to DAOs in, in general, DAOs are a way to coordinate groups of people. Um, and it just decreases the the frictions associated with coordinating those people. So people like a lot of companies, Blockworks included, right? We had to figure out how to take this online, like online IRL organizational structure called a company and translate that to a totally digital world. DAOs actually start with the assumption that everyone is digital and 100% remote. And if I can actually just like zoom out for a reason, like why it's such an important um, strategic imperative for Blockworks to figure out how to talk to and sell to DAOs. If you look at the core customer base of Blockworks today, we uh, a, a lot of it is based around kind of these core infrastructure-based companies in crypto. So like, not that these are necessarily customers, but companies like the Coinbase's or FTX or BlockFi's or, or have the very capital markets infrastructure-based companies. And the reason why that is, is because those are great companies. And when Blockworks was starting out in 2018, it was very obvious that they were going to be 
the big winners. That's where all the capital was going. That's where all the talent was going. And we could just tell in the industry, there was a huge need for institutional kind of capital market stuff. And they were feeling that need. I think it's it's pretty obvious to Jason and I that over the course of the next two years, most of the capital and the talent is migrating to DAOs uh, for whatever reason. You, you can kind of track how much is actually in current DAO treasuries. So basically how much how many assets do DAOs have in the aggregate and how much can they spend on things? You can look at open orgs or like deep DAO as, as guides. And it's anywhere from like eight to $10 billion already. We think that number is going to go up a hundredfold over the course of the next couple of years. So huge amount of capital uh, that's going to be deployed basically in the space. Um, selling to them is a really interesting process, right? So the folks uh, who are sales professionals will kind of know you got to find your your sort of champion internally at a company, right? So generally, you're kind of pitching someone who's a little bit more junior, you're trying to get them to advocate for you internally, it goes up to someone senior, and then it kind of makes a decision. And you're kind of trying to build consensus in the organization. And usually that takes between, if it's a small company, it's like one or two people. If it's a big organization, it could be as much as like 10 or 15 people. In a DAO, everything is open and transparent. So you have like a proposal, right, for something that you're trying to sell and you dump it into this this governance forum and you have a thousand DGENs giving you an upvote or a downvote. It's just, it's actually pretty funny because people are in a weird way. I think there are pros and cons to it because on the one sense, the more people you have making a decision around something, the less quickly you kind of come to consensus about that thing. And I think DAOs are figuring that out. So I, I don't think the future of DAOs is like everyone voting on every little thing, but that's what it kind of looks like today. Um but actually, the benefit of selling into DAOs is that you get real honest feedback. You know, like very often when you're pitching, when you're pitching something, someone will be like, oh, yeah, this proposal sounds great. I'm so excited about this. You never hear from them again because it's unpleasant to give people like bad feedback, you know. Uh, but in the in this Internet, you know, forum where everything is anonymous and you've got a thousand people, people be like, this sucks. This sucks. Why would we ever do this? Like, are you kidding me? Who even proposed this? And you know, well, the first couple of times we did this, we were like, oh my God, you know, we kind of got shredded. But uh, in, in the end, it actually be, it ends up being really helpful. And I can tell you like a direct, you know, one of the improvements that we made to permissionless based on this is the, the value proposition of DAS, right, is you get to talk to these hedge funds, these big institutional players that you otherwise wouldn't. So a lot of our language and the value proposition, the way we describe the conference is exclusivity, get to meet these people, yada, yada. So that DNA and language kind of found its way into permissionless. And what these DAOs told us were, dude, we don't want that. What we want is open community building, et cetera. So it actually helped give us real-time feedback and pivot uh, in a really big way. So I don't, that was a long, uh, long answer to your question, but it's been, it's been an interesting experience. Yeah, so. I think it's super fascinating because as you point out, there's a lot of money kind of sitting in these DAOs. There's also a lot of different kinds of DAOs. And um, I think, Jason, you had mentioned once that like the future kind of company structure is going to be something similar to a DAO, especially for these more endemic focused ones. But there are also some that are just kind of like like clubs almost like, I, I don't know the, um, the constitution DAO, which was like a group that was looking to buy a first edition of a, a constitution of the United States. Like that one, it's not a company, but it's still a DAO. Like, I guess, what are the, who are the DAOs that you're interested in? And are they like technically these just very like transparent, open, you know, governance-based companies like I'm curious how legit they are I guess for a lack of better words here's my take I'm curious what Mike thinks about this but my take on DAOs is DAOs are just 
companies without the friction of like forming your LLC and forming your C corp in like this kind of old school analog, like archaic way of doing it. It's just an easier way to form a community and and to build a treasury actually. And like at its simplest form, crypto is just reducing frictions across the board. So if you look at something like DeFi, DeFi is just frictionless finance. DAOs in my mind are like frictionless uh, company creation or like community creation. And so like there's a really wide range of DAOs. So like DAOs, can look like just pooling capital together in a really frictionless, easy, fast way, uh, and in a, in, in a very like global and remote way to do it. So that's what you saw with Constitution DAO. They raised something like they raised something like forty million dollars in in about a week, I think it was, and that was just or or this uh, the donations to um, to Ukraine. Like you can, it's just a very easy way to allocate capital and to basically bring a community together. There are also DAOs that look more like companies, right? So this is like a Uniswap or ENS, Ethereum naming service, or Lido. Like Uniswap has $3.5 billion in their treasury. That is at the scale of a large institutional company. But then there are DAOs that are, uh, I, went, I went to Emory, my alma mater, like Emory has a, uh, their, their like uh, mascot is Dooley. Uh, and like there, there's a dually DAO for just like Emory students who are now in crypto. And it's just a way to allocate capital and like manage a treasury and to bring a community together. So in the same way that there are C-Corps and LLCs with three employees and there are C-Corps and LLCs with 300,000 employees, same thing with DAOs. Um, it, it really runs the gamut. Yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm also curious, like, because I want to get into the selling to DAO process. Um, Mike, as you said, it it can be a brutal learning experience, but probably a very valuable one. Um, So I guess, is it one salesperson on your team that's, you know, kind of joining these DAOs? Do they have to legitimately like buy their way into it? Or how are they uh, identifying a good client potential and then going into those meetings, I suppose? Because I think a lot of it happens over like Discord, it sounds like. But I'm curious like what the actual sales process looks like. Yeah. I think one of the things to... So every DAO is different and there's no standard model. Like for companies... So so our customer who we sell to is our marketers, right? Everyone's marketing structure is a little bit different. People have different titles. People have different responsibilities. But in general, it's it's relatively similar. DAOs are going through this thing right now where they're a little bit unsure of... Because you, know, you know one of the guiding principles of a DAO is decentralization in general. And I think some of them are figuring out, ooh, like one-to-one perfect democracy, everyone gets a vote probably isn't great. Hierarchy exists for a reason. But they're kind of experimenting with different structures. A lot of DAOs also are transitioning from a foundation model, you know, which is basically they had this foundation, that's what raised all the money, and they allocated capital from there to this more decentralized thing where you have different... Uh, contributors that kind of will be in charge of marketing uh, per se. So oftentimes it's a little bit depending. Some some are really well organized. Some are a little bit a little bit less well organized. But overall, the sales process at the end of the day is not wildly dissimilar from selling to a company. You figure out who the decision maker is. You reach out to the decision maker. I would say the big the big difference now is that for big allocations of spend, right? If you're going to spend. Hundred or two hundred thousand dollars on a on a marketing on a marketing budget that has to get approved by the wider community. So the big change in strictly process for selling to DAOs is that eventually that makes its way onto a forum, and then you have the aforementioned one thousand DGens giving up or down votes on it, and that's like the big hiccup I think in the process. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that is ultimately the big difference. And then if if you 
again, there are different, you know, sometimes you need a certain percentage of votes and then it goes through and then ultimately it goes to one decision maker. Sometimes it's just, if you get a certain percentage of votes, then it's like, you're good. Uh, payment is often a bit of a weird thing because DAOs will want to pay you in their natural, uh, you know, their, their native token a lot of the time. Uh, so it's all just a fun learning process, I would say. But, you know, I, I think any media company, especially the ones operating in crypto, should definitely be thinking about this because, again, we'll see if Jason and I are right in two years. But again, it's just like we can feel this magnet, right, of talent and money and everything. And if you look at a lot of the funds that have been raised recently, like Andreessen did this a while ago. They did this like three years ago. They transitioned from a VC to an RIA so that they could buy liquid tokens. Bain Venture Capital, which had, say, an inauspicious launch for their crypto fund uh, the other day. Um, it's so that they could buy liquid tokens. So we can actually see the funding starting to shift in real time as well towards these liquid tokens and DAOs are, are the way liquid tokens will work. So one thing that's yeah, happening and, um, is uh, just mm -hmm. there are now these core units or sub DAOs being created inside of DAOs. And so this basically looks like different departments inside of it. It's funny. I think a lot of folks outside of crypto are look, look at something like a DAO and they're like, never going to wrap my head around that. You know, what, what is this crazy thing that these young kids are getting up to with the DAOs? It, it really doesn't look that much different than a company, except that it's just more efficient, right? Yeah, and so I'm like MakerDAO um, launched a, a big uh, protocol or DAO in, in, in crypto, launched these things called core units, right? And each core unit has a budget attached to it. It's managed by one or, one or two facilitators. Those facilitators coordinate and pay contributors who work to achieve these like long-term bigger MakerDAO goals, what is that? That's a department inside of a company. So you've got like the growth core unit, you've got the engineering core unit. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's just, that's no different than uh, departments inside of companies. So. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it does sound as they kind of evolve um, and, and gain, I'm sure more money, they're, they're going to have to have more organization. So that sounds like a natural progression there. Um, okay. So getting into like a, Jason, you said that you originally thought you were going to hire one person that would kind of be steering the ship for um, uh, like selling to DAOs, but now all of your sales team is is going to be trained or is trained in this kind of process. Um, so it sounds like there's this just very big focus that you guys have for you know this year and the next few years on selling to DAOs and, and really developing that kind of skill set. Um, I'm curious, like how many deals you've actually closed with DAOs at this point. And um, I know you mentioned permissionless, um, permissionless Mike as being one of the uh, major kind of anchors that these deals have been attached to, but are they mostly con uh, connected to conference businesses or are they, are you looking to do more like traditional media buys with um, DAOs on your, on your website or in your podcasts? Yeah, I, I can, I can take that first part just about our sales team. Um, in like 15 years ago, you never would have had when as like internet native companies were, were popping up, you wouldn't have said, oh, there's this like side thing called the internet. Like we're just going to see it, treat it as like a side hobby. And like we might have like 5% of our sales focus beyond those companies. You, the smart, the smart B2B businesses, folks who are selling maybe our media companies, right? Who are selling ads and sponsorships and things like that, they put a lot of focus into helping not just their sales team, but their entire company really at its core understand what like being a digital native business meant and like what these new 
uh, back then it was like it was social media networks and SaaS companies were the two folks who really, really thrived here. And so that's how we're kind of looking at things like just crypt. I mean, crypto, obviously, we're, we're bought in, but what DAOs in general, like instead of having our original thought maybe like a year ago is, oh, maybe you put like one salesperson on DAOs and they become the DAO expert. But now our belief has kind of expanded uh, which is that DAOs are the new institutions. DAOs, DAOs are going to be larger than any sort of software business. I think a DAO will eventually be larger than the biggest bank that we have in, in the US. It'll be larger than the largest social media network. Um, and that probably sounds crazy, but like already today, you've got Uniswap has $3.5 billion in their treasury. Uh, ENS has about a billion dollars. Lido has like $450 million. And so we're teaching not just our entire sales team, but like the marketing team at you know, the editorial team, we're teaching everyone just about what these kind of crypto native institutions mean. And on the on the sponsorship side, I think a lot of folks want to originally get involved with permissionless, because that's this, you know, five to 7000 person event, it's very like community focused, which is, uh, you know, kind of mirrors the ethos of these DAOs. But now we're seeing folks expanding, uh, expanding their kind of reach and like, media buys with us as they discover and learn more about BlockWorks and also their marketing needs and like their customer acquisition needs are changing and, and evolving as well. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. So obviously there's a lot of money sitting in these, um, not banks, I guess like wealth piles. I don't really know where, <laughs> I guess, yeah. on the blockchain in their, in their little corner of the blockchain. Um, are the deals bigger for DAOs? Like, are you able to get them to sign, you know, hefty deals just because they have more money at the ready? Or what's the kind of trade-off in that end of things? Like, I don't know, are they also kind of stingy because you have to get a lot of votes to pass, you know, these deals? I think just like any company, it kind of varies, you know? Uh, I think there are some companies that like love to do big media buys and kind of splash around and, and do a lot of things. And then there are other ones that, uh, you know, would always prefer to start smaller and do something niche. And, you know, one thing that I would say also is the difference in selling to DAOs versus companies is the sense of ownership and community that people in DAOs have. So this is actually a difference selling to small versus big companies. Generally, when you're selling to a small company, the person that you're talking to feels a deep sense of ownership. And it's not like they're spending their own money, but they're like, this is, God, this is my baby. Like, I care about this. And when you're, so your value proposition is very different. You want to connect to them as a person show that you understand the company, et cetera. When you're selling to a large company, people feel less of a sense of ownership and you're actually trying to protect their individual sense of time. Uh, so it's just like a very different, it's a bit of a different value proposition for DAOs. One of the best things about crypto is how bought in everyone is, uh, how much they want to see the entire space succeed, uh, and how much of an owner they feel like that's another part of, of being in a DAO. So I think, um, you know, to your, to your point, we, you know, we try to take extra care that whenever we're, we're pitching something to a DAO, we, we want it to actually make sense. Um, and we want to, we want to add that. We want to make sure that we're always adding value uh, to that community and not just like, hey, take this huge high value thing, I would say. Got it. Got it. All right. So, uh, Mike, you had also said something interesting um, that kind of made me perk up earlier with DAOs want to pay you in their own kind of native token, um, which is interesting because um, I'm curious about what happens when they do pay you in that and what that means for your own kind of finances. Like, what's the process of accepting payment in something that's a very small, maybe not even public coin? Um, and how does that work for you guys in terms of like, 
reporting it on taxes. Like it just seems very unique to have this be sitting on a on a balance sheet for a business. Sure. Um, on another four to six hour podcast, I can explain to you all the tax implications uh, of all this stuff. Uh, I can tell you it's in it's very early days and there aren't super clear guidelines in terms of how all of this works. Um, you know, a lot of this is just kind of a, a judgment call in general for, for us. Uh, I, I can tell you if it's a really tiny, we're, we're actually, one of the things that we're very protective of is we want to make sure that we're aligning with companies that we believe in. So we actually turn down sponsors on a pretty regular basis uh, at Blockworks and you know, if it's a really small token and we're concerned about liquidity or something like that, we won't accept it. And every, everything like that is kind of treated on an ad hoc basis. But it, it has required us to set up infrastructure to accept and deal, do payments in a crypto native way. Now, one of the benefits of doing that, actually, and something that might not be as um, it's kind of an, an, a known thing in the industry, but might be surprising to folks who are not operating inside of crypto, is dealing with crypto payments and crypto payments infrastructure is an order of magnitude better than dealing with traditional financial infrastructure. And I can tell you that from personal experience because for a long time, I was the one who dealt with all of BlockWorks banking. And it is a nightmare. Honestly, it's like every little payment gets flagged. I have a feeling we're on the list because we're a crypto company. That's never been confirmed. But uh, it's like every little payment gets flagged. Jason knows. Like I used to go down to the bank it's like literally like three or four times a week. I'd be sitting there. Don't know why this happened. Blah, blah, blah. With crypto, it's so easy. It's so fast. It's so much cheaper. So it's it's kind of this thing that if you weren't in the industry, like people that accept crypto payments, like, oh, you got to send me a bank wire. Are you kidding me? It's such a pain in the ass. So it, it is this kind of cool thing where a better solution actually already exists and people are using it. It's kind of ubiquitous. So yeah, I mean, I, I think cool. I see a world, uh, Kaylee, where USDC payments and just stablecoin payments. Like, it, I, I have a feeling that in maybe two years or three years, that Blockworks might not accept wires because of just how cumbersome and bothersome it is, right? And I think that a lot of crypto companies and just more like digitally native brands will just move to their their entire financial stack will be on basically on top of stable coins, just because of how much easier and simpler it is uh, to do it. Like if we want to send money to London today, it takes like three days to get there. And that's like the year is 2022. That just makes no sense. So in general, I think that that's one of the big like points of um, like advocacy points, I guess, for crypto, just the the speed of it, right? Like flattening that kind of timeline. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. From like a volatility standpoint, though, like m my personal crypto just kind of took a little little bit of a dive the other day with uh, Ethereum going down, and <laughs> so yeah. Did so like, <laughs> what does that what does that mean for like a business? Like, does that kind of ever flag concern for you guys, or is it less concerning um, because you know it's going to come back up, or I don't know? Do you immediately like turn it to to you know USD? Like, what's the kind of volatility factor just out of more curiosity. So treasury management became a bit of a buzzword in crypto a little while ago when Michael Saylor made that big Bitcoin buy. I will be honest, I've always been a little, Jason knows, I've always been a little skeptical of that becoming a big trend because first and foremost, the job of finance in general at a company is to allow the operations to continue in such a way that you're not risking the business, right? So for that reason, treasury management tends to be a part of the company which is occupied by very conservative people. And the goal is never to, to take a financial risk that will endanger the operational goings on day to day of the business, right? So, you know, when it without getting into specifics when it comes to Blockworks, basically, we never have an amount that even if it everything went to zero, that it would even 
cause one sleepless night for Jason and I, I think, uh, is the goal. I think, you know, it, it is a pretty interesting trend in in general for for DAOs, which is, again, an area we've been talking a lot about and Jason and I are super excited in. For them, the vast majority of their uh, treasuries are in these native tokens, right? So that actually makes them hugely susceptible to these price swings. So I think over the course of however long, the next like two to three years, you'll see professionalization in treasury management for DAOs, which means to overly, I don't have any specific knowledge here, I didn't look this up before, but let's say Uniswap has a $3 billion treasury and it's all in uni token. Eventually someone's going to come in and look at that and say, this feels pretty risky, guys. We Maybe we'll have half of it in uni, okay? But the rest needs to be in USDC or ETH or this like diversified basket of things. Oh, and we need to be earning yield on it. Too. So to answer your question, I think a lot of people think like that. Um, and I think that will be a trend uh, for crypto companies in general, because you want to be safe, right? You have real world payments here. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So I also want to talk more about the conference side of the business and get into the beloved NFT conversation as well. Um, you guys are also doing something cool with your uh, tickets to permissionless and having them be uh, VIP tickets rather being uh, NFTs that have an additional set of value on it, which I think is a really cool application of it that we're only just like really beginning to start to see. But a lot of media companies are talking about the possibility of it, um, including like, you know, Digiday, it's a conversation I've been thinking about as well. Um, what's the kind of... I guess, upshot of having a, a NFT as like a ticket for an event. Media is an interest. Media is a changing uh, landscape. I think without, without getting too much into it, there's a guy like um, Ben Thompson, the writer of Stratetry, like he, he has some great thoughts on this, but I, I think overall to set context here, what we're seeing is like an unbundling of media in general, right? So it's people going from the New York Times onto Substack and people are subscribing more to individual people in general. I think Crypto and some of these native, these things that we're talking about, DAOs, and we're going to talk about NFTs, offer some pretty interesting solutions um, to media. And I think they're going to combine in interesting ways over the course of the next, let's say, five or so years. I think DAOs, DAOs are a pretty interesting example of they flip what companies do in terms of most companies, they start with a product. Like, all right, we're Toys R Us, we've got this great Etch-A-Sketch. I don't know why I give that example. Whatever, you start with the Etch-A-Sketch and then you go find your customer, right? Kids that want to play with Etch-A-Sketches. DAOs flip that on its head. And they say, actually, in this age where everyone is on social media, where there's like a hundred, a bunch of things flying at you, the real valuable thing is this sense of community and audience. So they actually focus really hard on building that out of the gate because they say that's actually the harder thing to do. And then they slot the product in there. NFTs are a lot of different things, I think. But one one thing that they are as well is a new way for media companies to monetize. So instead of just selling subscriptions, selling advertisements, this is actually a way, a more direct way for you to connect with your audience and people say, hey, I support this company. I want to I want to get this, this NFT. Um, so I think for us, what that in largely, you know, the truth is I think those models are still being worked out. There are some really great guesses. If you look up uh, this guy, Chris Dixon, uh, who wrote a great blog post on this um, in terms of why, you know, NFTs represent a big step function change in terms of how media companies will monetize. I It sounds very compelling, right? But I just, I don't think we know yet. So NFTs, I think for us are largely an experiment. And I think it's also a way for us to more connect with our community of people in crypto. Like Jason and I, at the end of the day, we're, we, we, we do love this industry and we want to do things to move the industry forward in general. And I think part of that is on us to experiment with new models that weren't possible f- 
before. So I think what we want to do is kind of find a way to give back to the community, try an experiment and do something interesting. So we're releasing these NFTs in tandem with Permissionless uh, to just try to like get people excited and engage the community. Yeah, and they're pretty I, cool. I'm not gonna. I'm I mean, they're biased, really cool. They're so, cool. Kaylee, what, what <laughs> we actually cool did guys. talk about this in practice. We hired a um, uh, an animator, an illustrator from Pixar, actually, who's creating five, yeah, 500 unique NFTs. And if you're an NFT holder at the time of the conference, you get access to special things at the event that no one else has access to. And one of the reasons that we are launching them as uh, NFTs instead of just like an event ticket on Ticketmaster or whatever it might be. There's a number of different reasons. Like one, it's just like crypto native things. Like we are a, I think there's an honest answer, which is like, we are a crypto native brand and we would like to do things that move this crypto, like crypto native products like DAOs and NFTs forward. But there's a lot of other benefits for the user, right? One is like really seamless secondary transactions. So let's say you buy the, you buy the NFT. It's going to cost, I don't know, 3000, 4000 bucks. You buy it and it's like one day before the event. And that thing is now trading at $10,000. You have the ability to hold on to that or to sell it, right? You might say, okay, at $3,000, I valued that that VIP experience at the event. But at $10,000, I want to sell this. And someone else can come in and purchase it for $10,000. And us, you know, we make money on the royalties. The artist makes money on the royalties. The developers of the NFT, the smart contract, make money on the royalties. And the person selling it makes money on the secondary sale. So kind of everyone wins there. And then there's also like really unique on-chain artwork and animations associated with it which is really, really cool. Like when you buy a StubHub ticket, there's no, or an Eventbrite ticket, like there's no meaning and like feeling there. We have every single NFT has a unique illustration animation, which is really cool. And then the last thing is just like the verification of how many actually exist. Like when you buy, I don't know if you go to concerts, but like I bought concert tickets the other day and I, ha- I was like, are there 500 people going to this? Are there 10,000 tickets out there? Are they overselling because they assume that some people won't attend? You can, on the, on the Ethereum blockchain, you'll be able to see exactly how many of these NFTs have already sold, how many exist, and, and how much each one of those costs. So yeah, there's just like a lot of transparency and openness around them. So a couple questions about like, I guess, the logistics of having a, a ticket NFT. One is someone bought it they're at the event, are they just kind of flashing the picture on their phone and saying like, hey, like I have this, let me into this like cool VIP area? Or how does that work? Is it like a QR code also that could be scanned? Like I'm curious like about the logistics of proving you're the NFT holder. We are so early into the industry that the tooling literally does not exist for this. And our CTO and our engineering team is building this in-house, which is, I think that just goes to show like how early we are into this industry. And like, I think a lot of people see things like DAOs and NFTs. They're like, ah, the frictions and it's so complicated. Like, of course, the industry, like Bitcoin was launched in 2009. Ethereum was 2015. This stuff hasn't been around for that long. And so, and this is a really good example of that where there aren't even, there's not a tool that we can buy. There's not an Eventbrite for NFTs. Like we, we're building all of this technology in-house. We're writing that the actual smart contract code onto the Ethereum blockchain. We didn't white label any of this. We, we built, we're building it all in-house. So, Got it. All yeah. right, cool. And then a question for the people who are still maybe leery of the NFT secondary market, because I think that there are some people who are like, well, someone's going to buy one. Are they going to actually like pay more than the original price for a ticket? There are, I know, some NFTs that sell for 
like millions of dollars, like Board Ape Yacht Club, like the secondary sell for those are, is, is rather insane. Do you think like the secondary market is something that will be really impactful to your events business or what's your kind of like take on, on that end of it? And you did say that you're going to, you'd make some sort of portion from like a royalty structure on that. But do you think that the people that are buying the NFTs are looking at it as more of like an investment opportunity versus like the access to the event? Like, I, I, mean, I guess I'm curious about that secondary market piece of it just because it really depends on like the community, I think. I have, I have thoughts on this overall. I think if you are buying any NFT for an investment opportunity, I think you should just be very, very careful uh, in general. Like NFTs are a super, super exciting space. I think they have an enormous amount of potential. It is still really, really early days. So a lot of the people that are experts in NFTs or spend a lot of their time in NFT-based communities will tell you, do not buy something with the expectation that it is going to go up 100x and you can quickly flip it and sell it, right? Because I think overall, maybe things are a little bit frothy still. I think when you're thinking about NFTs, I would think about it with two principles in mind, which is one, I would buy an NFT not really based on, I hope this goes up a lot in value and you're kind of like crossing your fingers and like, please God, don't let it go down. I would buy it based on the community that underpins that that NFT. And, and I would look for, I would look for like Board Ape Yacht Club is actually writing the playbook for this in real time, right? So you get access to this community of people, but they're also like, they're kind of continuously experimenting with ways to add value to that community. And I think, you know, that kind of ties into, you know, more broadly a thesis about NFTs and how are NFTs and media going to combine in general. I think NFTs are going to be a really interesting way to, uh, that media companies monetize in the future, and it's going to determine the product set of media companies going forward. So if you think about, uh, media companies are all the exact same at the end of the day. You are building an audience, and then you are monetizing that audience. NFTs fit into that equation by... Uh, helping monetize the audience in a different way and one that's ultimately more aligned with the incentives of the audience. So in the age of the internet, you know, what media companies used to do is they used to tell you like what's going on in the world. They owned the pipes, right? Like people op opened up the New York Times app, right? Now people open up Twitter, right? So they've kind of lost access to, to the pipes in general. Um, and I think the scarce thing has actually become this sense of community, especially in the age of COVID. Like look at all of us right now, we're all on Zoom talking to one another like there's some sense of community there but like people really want that in person uh and just that feeling of connection that doesn't exist um so i think what if you think about the way that media companies monetize today what people are used to paying for when they when they pay for a subscription they want content they want really good information when people pay for nfts they actually expect something different they want something cool that they can put on their profile picture. They want access to a Discord full of really cool people that they can talk to and that they respect. They want participation in live events and stuff like that. So if you're a media company and you're thinking about how to monetize through NFTs, you just have to understand that people are buying those NFTs with different expectations of what the NFT gets you, and that will inform the product set of media companies going forward. So like great content is always going to be a facet of media companies. It's probably the determining thing. But then there are also going to be things like, what kind of community does your media company have access to? How many people do you have in your Discord? Do you have cool things that people can use to be to put on their profile? Do you have in-person events in life that if I'm an owner of this NFT, I can go to? So like that's ultimately how, I mean, this it's still very early days and a lot of this stuff is being written, but I, I think that's how NFTs and, and media kind of end up colliding. 
if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and to confirm, you guys have not started selling your NFTs yet, or when do those hit the market? No, we're dropping these late March, early April. Got it. Okay, so we'll keep an eye out. I'm very curious to see what they look like, especially if there's any kind of, I guess, Pixar illustration-y kind of, I don't know, vibes to it. It's It sounds really cool. If people go on Twitter and follow just at Permissionless, that's our conference. You can see, well, we're going to drop a couple of updates soon so uh, people can stay in touch there. Last question for you guys before we wrap it up. What's something about this kind of merging of media and crypto or, or blockchain that really has you excited that we haven't really touched on yet? It could be like big picture, you know, maybe won't be built for a few months, few years, but I am curious, like, what do you think is the biggest kind of potential for this convergence? Yeah, I think I think that's kind of a difficult question to answer because so much of it is, I can tell you what I think the biggest unsolved, the biggest unsolved question is, Web3, crypto more broadly, is a, it's a disintermediation of kind of central institutions and, and rent seekers. And a lot of people understand that through the lens of Bitcoin. I don't trust the banks. I don't trust the central banks, so therefore I hold Bitcoin. But a huge part of this actually also is Web2 media companies or Web2 companies have gotten too big. They're these gigantic monopolies and they're kind of stifling innovation. The problem is they've got the pipes. They've got the distribution pipes. That's how everyone finds everything. So crypto in some way is an answer to how powerful those big companies have gotten. The problem is we just we don't know what the solution looks like yet because they they haven't been built. Ultimately, I think media, if you look at it as a space, like you can look at ad dollars and where it went like publishers, TV, whatever, there's like, there like a pie chart of 2000. It's like pretty evenly split. And now it's like 60% of all ad dollars go to social media. Social media has won. But I think the most exciting thing about media over the course of the next five to 10 years is that these big internet giants are going to be disintermediated and it's going to open up this entire possibility for, right now it looks like it's going to be really good for creators, but who knows? You know, So I think once the big web giants like Google and Facebook get disintermediated in some way, like we don't even know what the possibilities are at this point, uh, but that's what excites me. Um, that's kind of a lame I, I would also yeah have well. a lame answer as well and just expand it beyond media and just say like I think when the internet was created and also I think the the mobile when the iPhone came out like the iPhone was like the glory moment for the internet um, and we just I remember I had one of the early iPhones and I was like okay you can text people that's cool and like the keyboard kind of sucks because like it hurts my my thumbs and like I didn't really know what was coming you know but the ability to have when you had when you have maps in a phone now you get things like uber and lyft and when you get a camera in a phone you get things like instagram and snapchat and i still think we haven't really had the iphone moment or the the uber the snapchat moment the the google maps inside of a phone which allows uber and lyft moment right and that just like the the possibilities i think are endless but there's no you're not going to be right if you try to predict them um and so i think but I, what i do know I do know something is right, which is like the world is getting more global. The world is going more remote. I don't like my banking experience. It's not It's not a pleasant experience. And these are all kind of just tailwinds for innovative technologies like digital assets and crypto to, uh, I don't know, go more mainstream, whether it's from like an asset class perspective or from a user and consumer perspective. So yeah, that's what I'm excited about. There's a lot, I think, of open-endedness of this, and it's exciting to kind of see it starting to come together, but it's still, again, very early days. So appreciate you both taking the time to speak with us about 
a lot of the nuances of this area and, and how you guys are really trying to, again, lead by example when you're covering this space as a media company. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, Kaylee, this was awesome. Really uh, enjoy the podcast. Enjoy uh, Thanks, the coverage of the space. It's cool to see you jumping in. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.